We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. That was the voice of Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and this is Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between outdoors, action sports and activism. As you're probably gathering by now, each episode I'm meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We're discussing the issues they're involved in, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved and the rewards that follow. My guest for this episode of Type 2 is Dan Yates. Dan lives in Snowdonia in North Wales. He's also one of the people behind Save Our Rivers, an environmental organisation dedicated to protecting our wild rivers and national parks here in the UK. Now, I'd known about Dan and Save Our Rivers for a while, but uh, it was only when I was on the same trip to Norway with him earlier this year that I fully understood the scope of his work. And I've got to say, I was pretty impressed, both by the approach and for the success that they've achieved through that approach. What I learned from Dan is that while activism is intrinsically linked to his own love for wild places, um, there's much more to it than that. And what comes across from his story and why I think his story is so valuable is really what you might call the reality of everyday activism. Dan and his peers are fitting in this work around their very, very busy everyday lives and in doing so finding hugely effective ways to achieve their goals that don't necessarily rely on direct action of the type that I've uh, covered in previous interviews with the likes of Jack Harry's. And instead, it means a lot of hard, dedicated and often unglamorous work. And there's huge value in this because one of the themes that's gradually becoming clear as Type 2 evolves, and I speak to more people, is that for activism to really succeed, it needs to be a combination of passion and pragmatism which is something that Dan and Save Our Rivers epitomise. So it's a really impressive and fascinating story, this one. And Dan tells it really well, which is why I sat down with him at the Kendall Mountain Festival to find out more. See what you reckon. How you doing, Dan? Yeah, I'm good, Matt. Good, yeah. good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Yeah, so, you, so we're at Kendall and you're... You've got a real busy weekend, right? You're... I have, yeah. So we started uh, last night. We did an event at 8pm last night, Thursday night. So right at the beginning of the festival, um, there's some proposed engineered flood defence going in in Kendall, which is going to involve the loss of a lot of riverside trees and some building of some dams and embankments in the upper catchment. Oh, right. Uh, this is a topical local issue. Yeah, so flooding, like big news everywhere in yeah. the UK at the moment. Well, of course, we're, we're talking um, as there is a very um well it's a big flood but it's just causing a lot of um headlines isn't it because it's become kind of you know subsumed into the election campaign and thing hasn't it really you know suddenly very topical like what are the parties doing about it yeah etc I, I think the problem that we're, we're having is is when politicians get involved in what essentially is an environmental issue like flooding yeah they they put pressure on agencies like the environment agency here to act quickly in, you know to make changes quickly so that often in the case of flooding would end up with building flood walls taking out trees on the riverside dredging rivers or building hard engineered structures which we know is not the correct answer so we want to look at changes of upland land management planting of trees meandering of rivers 
you know, returning rivers to their true state where they can store and hold water themselves. But those solutions, you know, even though we can help them along, take 20 years, 25 yeah. years. And when the politicians have it as an election piece, people want to see results the next day. And it does skew, uh, you know, it does skew environmental um, policy in a way that perhaps sure. we wouldn't want to see. Because it's, it's a medium to long term solution. And then when it gets the glare of that publicity, presumably people are like, what's the, what, what are we doing now? What's the quick fix yeah. kind of thing? Yeah, so last night we hosted a debate with uh, a local activist uh, who's, who's concerned about the, the, the damage that's going to be done to the River Kent through this. And the local, we got a natural flood management expert from the Rivers Trust to come and give you know, the assembled crowd from Kendall, who are all people who are concerned about, A, about the flooding, and be about you know the proposed damage to the river that these these engineered structures will cause, and we just tried to facilitate a bit of a discussion about alternative measures that could be. So how could be how, how was that taken? It was really good actually. Yeah. It was really good. Um, the natural flood management expert we got in was brilliant. Uh, he spoke really well. The crowd were. It was it was a bit of a weird one because we weren't sure if we were going to get a crowd which. We're going to be half i've had my home flooded i want this dam built now and half you know i want to save the, the nature of the uplands um so we we presented it as quite a balanced debate but right. actually you know everybody in the audience there i think like 60 70 people all just wanted to get campaigning and, and get this this construction stopped and right so i think we we would have maybe pitched it a bit differently had we known the strength of local feeling but that that's what happens when you start campaigning you, you've got to put the feelers out and then and then see where you need to go forwards from there yeah i've got a quick question on you mentioned upland management i'm just interested so whenever something like this happens in the uk i mean i followed george monbiot on twitter he's always talking about the fact that deforestation is is a huge reason for the fact that the uk gets flooded a lot basically um is that can you can you explain that is that is that, is that like a is that some because and he always gets a lot of criticism from from people who say that that's not the point at all and really what needs to happen is like rivers needs to be dredged more and because his argument seems to be that and i'm a total layman here obviously plant more trees it's going to stop it is that is that a what what's the sort of thought on that so so basically flooding is caused by obviously the amount of rain we're getting and that's increasing the climate change but the, the issue is how fast that water moves from the uplands down and hits the town yeah so if you're going to dredge a river if you're going to straighten a river if you're going to remove vegetation from the upland and make that upland flatter and smoother, that water that lands on that hillside is going to hit that town faster and it isn't going to be able to drain away in time. Yeah. So all you're doing by dredging the river down in the town and building walls is you're, is you're, putting, a, you're putting a sticky sticking plaster on that issue. Whereas yeah. what we want to do is basically hold that water up in the uplands. Um, and there's lots of different ways you can do that. First of all is, is you can give the river space all our rivers are really straight now because they've been, you know, straightened and they've been dredged and the sides have been reinforced because, you know, landowners don't want erosion of a meandering river taking out part of their land so that that increases the flow, you know, the, the, the speed of flow for, sure. the, for the water to hit the, hit the uplands. If you allow that river to meander and reconnect with that floodplain and flood onto the floodplain in the uplands, it's not going to be flooding in your town. Right. Tree planting has got, you know, it's got different aspects in the fact that it it stops the sediment and things running off the fields and it, it increases the roughness of that terrain. So water runs slower through a rougher terrain. 
it you'll notice like if you when you walk around a dense woodland there's there's less grass and less you know less surface coverage of vegetation so it increases the permeability of the soil so you get more water running down into the soil rather than straight into the river right and the final thing the trees do is they're is they're catching that rain in the leaves and then they're trans transpiring it back into the atmosphere so some of the rain doesn't even doesn't even make it to the ground so yeah we're, we're intercepting the rain before it's even hit the ground so, so, so our historical land management has massively contributed to this issue and and the debate now is like how we rectify that essentially and is, is can you summarize it in that way yeah i think i think you totally can i mean upland land management has always been about turning land into profit and yeah. whether that's for the number of grouse that you can shoot on that land whether it's the number of sheep you can get on that land you know whether it's the acreage that you can claim a farm subsidy for on that land so you've got to drain the land to to make it suitable to claim your agricultural subsidy and that has contributed to a degrading of our uplands so they don't hold carbon properly they don't hold a high enough level of biodiversity like they used to and they don't hold water like they used to and so we're ending up with a situation where it's been tolerable but an issue but now we've got raising populations uh, so people are we're building on floodplains because people need to live somewhere and we've got higher not higher rainfall overall but higher peak rainfall events due to climate change and it's ended up being a perfect storm we've got people living in flood prone areas we've got higher rainfall events and we've got and you know this degradation of our uplands which has been happening for, for you know for centuries sure um but in some ways has accelerated more recently uh, and you know that's leading to this perfect storm of flooding that we're getting now right and it's very charged as an issue isn't it you know it's almost it almost seems like to be an ideological issue you know like what your stance is you know like in from what i can see again in my very slight dabbling in it when i just read stuff online or like you know try and follow it in the news or whatever definitely seems to be um yeah like ideological is probably the word like how you propose to tackle it says a lot about your general approach to these issues right yeah definitely i mean the my approach to it and and i'd, I'd like to put the caveat here is that i've never lived in a house that's been flooded you know so i i can't look at it from the emotional point of view from someone who's lost their possessions or has their house flooded and i have the utmost sympathy for these people and I, obviously it is difficult for me to put myself in their mindset um but you know when we were debating this with the with the kendall audience last night lots of those people who are opposing these engineered structures had had their houses flooded so there's people on who've been flooded on both sides of the argument yeah. but my, my side is can we continue to engineer our environment to mitigate against the problem that we've caused by engineering our environment sure you know and, and, and where does where does that end yeah you know? we need to we need to go back and we need to restore and it's going to take longer um it isn't going to cost more money it's going to be cheaper but people are going to have to have patience and we're going to have to accept a change in land use of our uplands which is going to affect farming and agriculture and farmers will need to be compensated for that uh, you, you know whether that's through subsidy or through government grants for turning over their land for this use so that there needs to be a way of compensating the people it'll affect but but we, it can be done yeah you know, there's no reason why not so it's a good metaphor generally for the um, environmental argument right i now. think so yeah essentially so. so you mentioned earlier that when you said when you start campaigning um 
and you know i know you from the work that you do with save our rivers so could you explain a little bit about that organization are you probably gonna laugh that i've used the phrase organization but you know what i mean like could you explain a little bit about that and also i'm interested in the approach because am i right in saying that you do find these issues and campaigns to turn your attention to yeah, I mean, so we we started as, a, a, I suppose the reason organization is a strong word is <laughs> is we started as a as a group of a group of whitewater kayakers that live in in Bettisacoid and our local river, um, which is the River Conway, uh, is one of the the best sections of whitewater in the UK, you know, without doubt. And there's a community of of sports people who've grown up around that river, yeah, and it's produced some of the best whitewater athletes in the country from this little from this one little valley um and then one day we were rwe which is a, a multinational power company proposed to dam that river uh, and divert the water from the dam three kilometers around this stunning gorge yeah uh which is the section of river that we like to kayak but is also home to otter and salmon you know and horseshoe bat and hundreds of species of oceanic bryophyte. And it's a really magical place. Uh, and, you know, put the water back in around the bottom and, and leave it, you know, with essentially only 25% of the flow that it would normally have. So we went to a public consultation event uh, that our, Ed, RWE held um, and they invited the local kayaking community onto. And they, they kind of offered us, ah, oh, well, you know, if we build this down, then we'll give you some money to build a clubhouse somewhere or right. we'll compensate you for this. Which is presumably a, a tactic. Yeah. yeah. And, and then and then we, we all walked out of this room and were like, you know, these guys are fuckers. We need to stop them doing this. Yeah. You know, not only did we feel bullied and patronized, but we felt impassioned to do something about it. And we had a meeting in a pub and Save Our Rivers was born as a, as a response to this one single issue um and and there was a real learning it's you know learning curve for us to work out how we wanted to work as activists how we were most able to stop this development how we were able to engage with the community of fishermen walkers photographers local businesses local residents who all were also against this you know this development and and we we ended up with a with a our strategy involved we would look at the development with a fine tooth comb we would pick it apart we would find areas where its environmental impact was being misrepresented we would follow planning law as closely as possible and we wouldn't we would we would follow the legal recourse of the planning system and the environmental permitting system and that would be our method for getting this blocked we weren't the sort of people who felt we were able to go and chain ourselves to a digger sure. or to protest or make a placard. That wasn't the that wasn't the methodology we followed. Where did that come from then? I don't really know. Um, I suppose a few of us that are involved in Save Our Rivers have a semi scientific background. I'm a I'm a optometrist by trade, so I've got a science based degree. My friend Tom, that is my partner in Save Our Rivers, we're the two, the two sort of guys that run that, is a chemistry teacher right. in the local high school. And it just sort of felt like it fell into our skill set. Because did you, did you have any experience of campaigning before this? No, not at all. So it was very intuitive, the way that you decided to take that approach. Yeah, and I think we made some mistakes in the beginning. Right. I think when you, when, you, when you start a campaign and you don't know what you're doing, you sort of load the blunderbuss with... <laughs> <laughs> tactics and you shoot it at the wall and you see which ones stick and yeah. those are the ones that you follow up and and that and that's how it worked for us 
Uh, and then since then, you know, we've taken that same model and applied it to five or six other hydro schemes. We've applied it to some legislative change that was pushed forward for our national parks. We're now hopefully going to help these guys in Kendall yeah. use the same, the same techniques that we've used before. Uh, we've had a call from some guys in Norway asking for some support for next year. And, and it's about rolling, you know, we learned the hard way and it was difficult. You know? right. our, our first campaign took three years to block this one hydro scheme. So you were working out your methodology almost. Yeah. And then, and then the hydro scheme got presented to us in March of this year and we stopped it within a month, one right. planning cycle. And it's... So it's, it's almost like a data-led approach, if you like. You try and understand how you can use the massive information that's out there and, and a lot of it's legislative right you know you try to understand the legislative playing field if you like and and so a lot of it's like understanding that and working out how you can use that to your advantage to make the change that you're trying to achieve is that that's a good good way of looking yeah at it? yeah definitely i mean there are environmental protection laws out there some of them are not strong enough but actually, the real issue is that most of our environmental protection laws, you know, and around rivers, we're talking about Water Framework Directive, which is a European law, are just badly adhered to and, you know, badly regulated. Yeah. So uh, we have a legal obligation in the UK uh, under the European Water Framework Directive that all UK rivers should be of good ecological status or should be working towards being of good ecological status. 14% of UK rivers are of good ecological status. So it just shows that, that that isn't being applied. Whereas if we can see a development and we say it's going to cause a degradation of standards under the Water Framework Directive, then we can use that legislation to force the regulator to reject it. Right. Um, is that specific to each campaign? Yeah, the, this, it is. This information that you try to find? Yeah. So like the latest campaign that we fought against the hydro scheme on the River Clugwee, um, what we looked at there, the thing that, that we really pushed on was uh, damage to ancient woodland. Right. So ancient woodland is a is a is a protected habitat in the UK. So we try and find in each campaign what's the legal point that we can use to sway it. Uh, you know, what's the, what's the way we can win the argument with sure. the authority. Um, and, it, and it's different every time. Yeah, it's different every time. That's it, what I find really interesting about it because. That that's work. I you know. Don't need to tell you that. But that is unsexy, like graft, isn't it? Yeah. Basically, uh, like you know uh, that 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 is like in the trenches, presumably at a computer. You know, you're a dad. You've got a job. You, you know, we'll get to the kayaking. You're busy. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, so you're presumably doing this in your spare time, and that that's what I find really interesting about this because that is that is that's hard work. Like it's like and and but it's working. You know the way that you're this methodology that we're talking about it's you know it, it is working isn't it oh yeah i i mean like i'm not the, the sort of person who would do it but i often think you know i'd love to be blowing a whistle on the street and marching with a placard <laughs> and stuff like that and that would be fantastic and it looks awesome and it looks like really good fun and i'm not taking away from anything that those guys do because people like extinction rebellion um they're raising the awareness of the issues gives yeah. the work that we do more traction sure and that's um, i think that's the importance of of that role in in this whole um narrative isn't it and i think that's one, one of the things that really came out from the conversation that i had with jack in the last episode you know that that flag waving element is totally important and and like you say does but really it's it's this work that you're talking about that actually then creates the, the 
the, the legislative change, which in your case is what you try to achieve, right? Yeah, totally. And we're trying to change, you know, even if we're just fighting one planning development at a time, yeah. we're trying to change the narrative. Uh, so we're trying to change people's perception of development in rivers or in wild places uh, so that the local community become increasingly understanding of the impacts it will have and increasingly, increasingly against that and that the planning authority and the environmental regulator will become aware that the local community around them are increasingly concerned about that and they'll act accordingly. They'll, they'll become harder on developers, they'll push for environmental standards more and they'll reject more cases where there's going to be damage done because, they, because the narrative in our whole area has changed around hydropower, for instance. Um, there's, there's a real feeling that, that hydropower development in Snowdonia has reached capacity and nobody wants any more. Right. And that's, that's a new thing. Right. And how did it work in that first example then? So you said it took three years for you to... And w w was that because, like you say, you were understanding the approach but can you can you explain quickly if, if it's possible like how you actually won that one then so so that one was really hard and that was because we hadn't changed the narrative yet so there was pockets of the local community that possibly still didn't understand the impact that hydropower can have it was it, it has a real issue as in it is it is definitely a renewable technology but it isn't a green renewable technology which is which is an awkward concept for people to, for, to get at and, first. And presumably something the other side can talk about as if it's a very positive thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it gives the developer a way to really push it and it gives yeah. the regulator and the planning authority a way to accept it, you know, even when it's not necessarily in the local area's best interest. So we didn't have that narrative change either amongst the people we were trying to sway the opinion of, which was the planning authority and the regulator, yeah. or amongst the local community. And it took us a while to change that. Um, so it ended up, uh, it went to planning. Um, we had the first, we didn't manage to defeat it at the first planning hearing. We managed to have it rejected for more information uh, to do with uh, aspects of the landscape report that, that weren't correct and weren't there. And then when it came back for this, it came back to planning again. And then we had to manage to have it rejected, but almost on a technicality and right. we won that one by a vote of six to five like in so right. it was close and then it came back to planning again uh and this time the the really good thing was and this is these stupid techie things that this falls falls down on is over this period of time um natural resources wales which is the regulator has to write a plan for how its rivers are going to meet water framework directive and that plan had changed in april uh, and when it went back to planning, the new planning application was written for the old Water Framework Directive plan. Right. So it was out of date. Right. So, so we could, it could get blocked purely on that. Um, so it, it took three goes around, around planning to get it stopped. But it was close. Each time we only just, only just got it. And in the end, the developer pulled the plans. Right. Uh, so it was never rejected. Um, they just had enough. Yeah, so the planning you wore, authority you wore were, him down. Yeah, and I think they, they were under the impression that the planning authority were going to have to reject it eventually. And right. so for both the planning authority to save face, because they've been promoting it all the time, they, the planning officer had been recommending it for approval to the committee each time. Right. And so the company would save face. They, they pulled the plans in the end. Right. Um, and then the second thing that a hydro development needs is it needs planning approval for the building of the weir and then it needs its kind of environmental permit, which is I'm allowed to take this water out of the river. Right. 
And the, the regulator on that had sat on it for three years, waiting to see what planning said. And then as soon as planning, it was pulled from planning, they felt able to reject it. Right. So, so they had both, they had their permit rejected for abstraction, which is water removal. And then they, you know, after pulling their, their planning up. So it, it took, it was close. It was a close fought battle, you know, and I was, I was nervous like right. a lot of the time, you know, and I'm not, I'm quite a competitive person. I'm not, I don't take losing very well. Uh, and also it's a really beautiful place. And I, I genuinely thought that I'd move away. If, really? If, if we'd lost. There's a lot of state for you, you know, emotional connection to the place, you know, three years work. Yeah. You know, times competitive spirit. That's like definitely can see why you wanted to win, really. Yeah. And I think, I think when you campaign for a place, your emotional connection to that place builds. Sure. Okay. So I get a, an increased appreciation of, of doing outdoor sport through being an activist. Yeah. And it ties you to the place ever closely, but that kind of ups your stake in the game, if you know what I mean. So you feel, you feel more committed to the battle that's that must be an advantage though right yeah oh in, i think in, so against who you're um lined up against as well because so i kind of use the phrase wore them down because you know you've because obviously they must get a point where they think this not is it worth this you know like when they see the 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 a the passion but also you know what you've brought to it as a as an argument you know because the other thing that strikes me when you were talking then is that it must be keeping them honest as well. You know, the people that are applying for this stuff a little bit because it sounds like a lot of what you're looking for is loopholes, like, you know, things that haven't been um, executed correctly at a local government level or an, an agency level. Is, is it changing the way that the people that are putting these schemes in are, are approaching it from the other side? If that I, think, I think so, yeah. And I think they're much more careful about any literature they, they put out. Yeah, they, they must know be. that we're going to take everything apart with a fine tooth tooth comb and anything that's been worded you know maybe favorably will be spelling out yeah. you know exactly what that means so a, a developer might write of a hydro scheme the water that we're going to apply to abstract take away from the river is you know uh q95 plus you know it or 75 percent over q95 nobody knows what that means yeah but what that means is they're going to take 75% of the flow of the river above the lowest 5% flow that that ever river ever reaches. So we'll present that in a graph or an example or, you know, show a picture of what the river looks like at 75% lower than it normally is, you know, because we catch it on a really dry day and what it should look like on a wet day. Yeah. And we can present that in an honest way that people can understand so, de so the developer has to be much more careful then because yeah. they know we're going to pull them up on that stuff yeah well it's the narrative thing you were talking about earlier which yeah. sounds like was the biggest lesson that you took from that first campaign that you need to make it something that people can tangibly become emotionally connected to right and yeah. have a stake in it you know yeah definitely above and beyond like where well, your homes might flood or like you know the gorge is going to disappear or whatever ultimately so has that developed as you've as you've got more experience? That that are you are you able to sort of pick that out quite quickly now on the on the things that you decide to work on? I think so. I mean, it, it's difficult because that first application was the biggest one we've ever worked on, uh, and I suppose if it was a little one, we wouldn't have felt passionate enough to get started. Yeah. Um, so we but we've worked on a, a lot smaller applications since, and quite a big one that was involving some quite complicated. Leg wording to legislation change 
but I don't think just think it's it's picking up on that. I think our method of communicating it with our audience has improved. Our understanding of how to frame what we're trying to say, you know, how to connect with people, yeah, um, on a level that, you know, I think we 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 may be a bit mature in, a bit more mature in how we do that than right. we used to be. Okay, so that that's just learning and growing, I suppose. So what's driving you with this then? Because obviously you did the first one and it was successful, but then you've carried on campaigning and finding different things to apply this approach to. So was there a point when you kind of thought, I'm just going to keep keep going with this? Or it, it, was, it, was, it was a really cool moment, actually. So, so the, the environmental permit for the first one had been pulled, and this happened about three months after planning was withdrawn. I had all my mates around the house that had worked on the campaign. So there's Tom and I that, are the, 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 that run the campaign, and we've got five or six other guys that, and girls that really help us out. And you know, one of them's a graphic designer and can do work for us there. One's a copywriter, so we can help with our website writing. And you know, so we've got a, a, one of them's a trainee lawyer, and he's really helpful with legislative stuff. But and they help us out. And we were having a big party, uh, you know, drinking pizza and eating beer, uh, eating beer and drinking pizza or whatever, <laughs> uh, at my house. And it was, it was Friday night, and it was about 10 o'clock at night, and I get a phone call from a guy um, called John Harold. Now, John Harold runs the Snowdonia Society in Snowdonia National Park. It's like a Friends of the National Park Society. And from the very beginning, he was our biggest ally and a real mentor to me as well, because he came from a traditional environmentalist background. And he said, I'm going to email you a document now. It's about legislative changes to our national parks it's a it's a leaked copy of a draft document um which is going to remove the main environmental protection from welsh national parks right it's being discussed in the welsh assembly on tuesday and none of the assembly members which is the welsh version of an mp basically none of the assembly members have even seen what it's based on and he says this is a disaster and if this goes through welsh national parks won't be national parks anymore under their IUCN rating which is what like was, the what was driving that then um sorry to interrupt you but yeah that, that so just, what was just what was just driving that in, was you know that sounds shady it, it, it was really shady uh, <laughs> and it was being driven by a particularly unpleasant environment minister that we had at a time at right. the time uh who even renamed his role from environment minister to Minister for Natural Resources, which I think pretty much says yeah. says everything. Minister for rinsing on behalf of the... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> and it was to allow more development and more, almost more extractive income from our national park areas, whether that's planting commercial forestry or whether that's building more hydro schemes or, you know, right. there's, there's a whole number of ways that this, this change could have taken place. And this this guy from the Snowdonia Society was like, oh, we need to do something about this. This was 10 o'clock at night. By 3 a.m. that morning, we had template letters for every mem every person that we could reach in Wales to write to their assembly member with a copy of this draft report to show what was happening. And we had a campaign up and running, you know, like during, you know, like... 11 p.m. through to like wow. 3 a.m. in the morning and we got it going and there was there was nothing more rewarding than than watching the live debate on tv and a.m. standing up is like i don't agree with this and reading from a letter wow. that i knew we'd templated right you know, and and it stopped it in its tracks and then 
you know, that was only the draft proposal and then the full proposal came out. So it ended up being a much longer battle. Uh, but it, that event, you know, had we lost it at that early stage, and, and that was where we thought, like, you know, us not working office hours, us being willing to do this at midnight or 1 a.m., us having a community of, you know, I don't know what we reach through social media, about 7,000 people who are really engaged with what we do and maybe 10,000 people who sort of follow us a bit. You know, if we can reach these guys and get them to respond in an instant, then we need to keep doing this. We've yeah. got a responsibility to keep doing this. Right, you know? so you felt like you, you kind of... Because obviously that must have really given you the the, the realisation of the scope of it. Because, you know, to, to escalate from a local to a national level like that and, and such an important thing, it must have been, a like, like you say, like a bit of a light bulb moment. Yeah, definitely. And, and in the campaign against the national park legislation changes, we called our campaign National Parks Matter, it was great because we were working alongside the Snowdonia Society, the Woodland Trust, the Wildlife Trust, the RSPB, and then all of a sudden there's us, like, with all the big players, you know, the the the, the traditional conservation groups, and um, um, we had a very different but important role to play within that, which was, which was what I saw was bringing outdoor sports enthusiasts to environmental issues and getting them to act, and I felt that that's something that has has been missing and until until recently and although it's happening a lot more now i still think it's lacking so um, what what can be done to change that I, I think it's it should be a mindset amongst people who engage in outdoor sport i think if you do if you play outside you've got to understand that the, the space you play in isn't just a playground it's the last vestiges of the wild habitats that we have in the UK well, or, a, or Europe. It's a political space today. Yeah, I mean yeah, that, that's the point. And, and you might not think it is, or you might not think it's relevant to you. But the fact of the matter is, as we're talking about, it is a political battleground, and it is. Yeah, I mean you you've outlined that, you know, with like five different examples already. Yeah, and and we have to understand our our place in that. And and it's my personal feeling that as an outdoor sports person my vision for that area is far closer to its natural state than a commercial forester's vision for that area or, you know, a hydro developer's vision for that area or a housing developer's vision for that area. And, and although it might feel slightly selfish that we want to preserve it that way to do our sport, um, in all honesty, you know, that's the state that that place should be. In, yeah, it's, you know? well, it's, it's much more sympathetic isn't it to yeah. the to the natural state of it yeah definitely. so do you think because there's a lot of organizations that purport to have that approach you know that uh, uh, but it sounds like you'd think that it could be more successful or it could be applied in a in a more targeted way let's say in in terms of traditional in, conservation in terms, or in terms of, of in terms of like uh, in terms of like you're talking about participants being empowered yeah. to to have a, a voice in this you know yeah I, and i think there is definitely a growing movement of outdoor sports activists like we were just listening to dom from trash free trails yeah. on the stage there who's a who's a friend of both of ours and is pushing mountain bikers to be more responsible with that you know protect our winters is an obvious one yeah protect our yeah. winters surface against sewage yeah we're the we're the first version of this and you know, Chris Hines is an absolute legend and Hugo is as well now. And Hugo is, has been a real mentor to me as well through the interactions I've had with him. But 
there is still a gap, you know, there, that we're not hitting. And if we're not hitting 100% of outdoor sports participants being environmentalists, then we're short. It has to be, the environment has to be first and foremost in our mind whenever we're in that space. And we have to think, what can we do to pr protect that? And it can't just be, you know, as important as it is, I'll pick up a bit of litter, or as important as it is, I'll sign this petition. Sometimes the activism that you've got to do is boring and it's a grind and it involves sitting in front of your your computer and writing a letter for an hour or reading some documents. But, you know, we have to eat into the time that we have to go and enjoy those spaces to protect them. It's you've got to you've got to kind of accept that that sometimes you've you've got to put the work in to yeah. get the joy out of it. You do you know? get do you get frustrated by I'm not sure you probably do, knowing you a little bit, like, but is it frustrating? Because what you're talking about is the the potential that the movement's got, really, if you frame it in that way. You know, like, if you can get that buy-in from people. Because like you say, I mean, we're at Kendall. I mean, you know, this is like, this is the constituents, isn't it? You know, and, and I'm sure if you spoke to everybody here, they would they would say, like, they were an environmentalist, they, were in, they were, had an interest in sustainability. But it's taken that, I'm not going to use lifestyle position because that's probably a bit harsh to up a notch to actual change in activism, isn't it? That, yeah. That's going to make a difference. Definitely. And we, we see it in terms of the actions that we ask people to carry out are not easy. We don't have, we don't generally run petitions for people to sign. We want people to write objections to planning responses and we will give them all the information about that planning application and what needs to be included, but we won't, do a, a letter for them to just send because that will have a lower impact when we send it. You right. know, letters need to be individual. Yeah. They need to highlight your concerns. And it's going to take someone 20 minutes, half an hour to do that. It's not straightforward. And we'll look at, you know, we, we had a, a petition run um, against the damming of the River Conway and we hit something like 7,000 signatures really quick. That's great but we only had 750 individualized letters written in. Why didn't all of those 7,000 people spend 20 minutes to write a letter? You know, um, you know, we reached more people than that in the, in, the, in the outdoor sports movement is huge. Why didn't they all write a letter? You know, and, and that conversion rate needs to be higher and, and we can do what we can in terms of messaging better that's our responsibility making it as easy as we can for people but in the end some people just have to make an effort you know and lots of people do but it, it could always be it could always be more and it isn't just that the environment would benefit from that i genuinely believe by campaigning and being an activist to protect somewhere you understand that place more you enjoy that place more and it changes your relationship with it and my relationship with my sport and the places i do it has you know multiplied tenfold that's why i think it's a really positive message though because again one of the themes that's coming up in these type two podcasts is this idea that um is it, there's a lot of guilt involved in in talking about things that need to change and you know like things you've got to give up you know think you've got to give up this part of your lifestyle to make change and what i really like about this is it's it's actually a very positive thing it's like positive action on the the issue level but also like you're saying on the personal level because it's win-win really you know you get to do something positive you get to affect an issue and you get to basically feel better about yourself and enjoy the thing that you're doing even more and obviously for you it's intrinsically linked to your um 
your passion for kayaking i mean that's where it came from you know and that seems to be what are the, is at the root of driving it essentially yeah i i, I was I think it's really hard. We, we were talking about this a little bit with um, people and their connection to the River Kent at, at the talk that we did last night. And I feel that increasingly as a, as a society, we're becoming disconnected from nature. You know, Nature is responsible for all our clean air, all our clean water, all our food, the oxygen we breathe. You know, It's the only repository for the carbon that we're putting out. You know, 60% of our emissions are recaptured by the environment we're in trouble because the other 40% are and we need to stop emitting those. Um, so we're thoroughly dependent on, our, on, on nature for our survival, but there's this sort of interface between us. It stops us connecting with it. But kayaking is such an intrinsic journey down a free-flowing river that you, that you, I feel you feel connected with nature in a way that, that breaks down all those barriers. And that's what's driven my desire to become an activist, I suppose. Um, and I sometimes feel when I would paddle the gorge on the Conway that we were protecting, I would just sometimes feel that, and it, it's a fairly tricky place to get into. It's not an easy bit of whitewater. And it was unfortunately, you know, the preserve of a relatively select few to travel that, that little passage. And I often thought if we could just get people to be here and just do this, they'd throw this, this damn application out in a second if they could see this place for, for what it is. And, uh, I think that's the same when you, um, you know, human power snowboard. When you like split board up somewhere and you and you and you and you snowboard somewhere where there's no lift lines and there's no snow blowing machines and there's no cafe at the bottom, you feel that connection to a place in a way that's different and uh, and and connects you to it in a way that you feel a, a sense of responsibility for it. I think. So one question I always ask people on this, and I mean, you've, you, you have probably covered it anyway, but I'll, I will ask it. Um, what can people do that are inspired by this conversation? I think, I think the thing that we've, we've tried to show um, is that activism takes many forms. Uh, my activism is mostly sat in front of a computer screen, drinking like eight cups of coffee and listening to EDM, uh, and that's how it Forgot works. Forgot about the Forgot about the EDM. Yeah, like, I have a, I have a, like a whole collection of really bad dance music that keeps me awake at night while I <laughs> while I write because there's no lyrics. I can I can concentrate on reading. At the uh, you same know what? Time. I have that as well. I when I'm when I've got to concentrate. This is such a tangent. Um, I find a type of kind of almost like abrasive music yeah like really helps i'm like lindstrom's my big like if you want to write read a, an entire environmental impact assessment bit of lindstrom that's great I yeah like that kind of like kind of for me it's like like the more unlistable aphex twin or something yeah you know like whatever it's funny how your brain works isn't it it's always like it it's white noise that kind of lets you focus i think if i was listening to aphex twin my um my letters would be more rowdy. Uh, <laughs> it might not be so balanced. I need, I need something relatively neutral in, yeah. in tone Sister to, to, Ray. Get, to yeah. get through it. Yeah. And, that, and that's my form of activism. Sure. And some people's forms of activism is getting out and marching. And some people's forms of activism is working on direct conservation projects where they're planting trees or they're, they're rebuilding rivers. And what I want people to understand is that you know, those are three forms I've listed. There are other forms that's maybe not even been discovered yet. Maybe yeah. someone's got an idea of how to make an impact at a higher level that, that I haven't thought of and nobody else has thought of. And that doesn't mean to say that it's wrong. Do it the way 
do something, you know, do it the way you think. If you've got an idea, you chase it because you can build your own movement. You know, we've seen that recently, you know, with Extinction Rebellion and Climate Strikes, the movement that's built, being built there is enormous. Our movement is much, much smaller, but it has a much more amplified voice per person because of the way we, the way, the way we work. Um, but do something, work on your skill set. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a really good friend of mine, Rock Rosman, uh, who's a kayaker in the Balkans, who, who does campaigning there, says you don't need to be a scientist to be an environmentalist. You just need to be a human with a voice. And, and how you use that voice is up to you. Well, pleasure, Dan. Thank you so much, man. So there you go. That was my episode of Type 2 with Dan of Save Our Rivers. Hope you enjoyed it. Big thanks to Dan for coming on the show and overcoming his obvious aversion to having his photo taken on my behalf. Cheers, Dan. Appreciate that. You can find out more about Dan and his work over at saveourrivers.org. And I hope you were able to take some lessons from this one that you can use in your own approach to activism. Now, I'd also like to draw your attention to show sponsor Patagonia's Gift of Giving campaign, which is running until December the 31st, 2019. So here's how it works. If you donate to any environmental group over on the Patagonia ActionWorks site, Patagonia will match your donation. You can make a donation in your own name or in the name of somebody else if you want to gift that. So let's just look at the example of Save Our Rivers. Let's say you listened to this, you were impressed, and you thought you were going to lob them a tenner. Patagonia are also going to give them a tenner if you donate through their ActionWorks gift of giving program and Save Our Rivers are going to get 20 quid. So they're going to match donations up to $10,000, I believe. And the fund in total is $10 million, um, which obviously has the power to make a huge difference to a lot of these campaigns on a local level. Find out more and potentially donate over at eu.patagonia.com forward slash action works. Sweet. That's it for this week. I'll be releasing new episodes of Type 2 every month or so. They do appear in my usual Looking Sideways channel. So to listen, you need to subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your usual podcast purveyor. If it's your first time checking out what I do, there's a big old back catalogue on there of uh, normal Looking Sideways episodes. And I'm also racking up a few Type 2 episodes now. All in all, we've got over 100 episodes of interviews with some of the biggest names in action sports and other related endeavours. So get stuck in. Let me know what you think. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Nice one. Mm-hmm.